What beautiful words, Father, to sing that you're more than enough for us. Individually, corporately, you're a God, you're a Father. You brought us together this morning and our prayer is that you would meet each of us exactly where we are and what we need. You know that intimately. Use your word, your spirit. Use each of us in each other's lives in this profound kind of way so that you will receive the glory. We will grow in understanding of you and the world will know that you're good. Clear distractions from our minds this morning. Help us to focus on you to hear your words. Our desire is that when we leave this place today, we will have met with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, as you, uh, you're seated, you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm continuing on. If you've been here or happen to have been here when I preached for the last month or month and a half or so, I'm uh, kind of focusing on this, this chapter um, in the book of Romans. Some of you, again, are familiar with this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And again, his, his heart, his desire is to unite them. And so he, he writes to them this, this message of the gospel. And through it, he kind of continues to expand on what the gospel is. And as we reach chapter 8 here, we find uh, this fuller expression, this, I used last time I preached, this crescendo of the confidence that we have in the gospel um, as we hit this chapter. And, and, and this morning... We're going to look at uh, particularly verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read, though, from the very first verse of chapter 8 um, up through 17 to give us the, the context of that. So chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the, on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are not debtors, or we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I don't know about you, but everybody likes a good story. And if you think about your favorite movie, your favorite book, most likely what you'll find in that story are, is a variety of, of subplots or, or themes or threads in the story. And what happens in the story is that as the, as the writer or the author weaves them together, that for a good part of the story, they're disjointed and, and there'll be things going on and people doing things and things happening that you don't quite understand the full picture of. And what happens as the story moves on, there will be a point in that story. And if you think about a movie or a book that you like, there'll be a point where there's resolution, where all those subplots come together. And as a, as a good author, a good writer, as you read that story, all of a sudden the lights go on and you go, oh, I see what's going on now. And this makes sense to this. And he was doing this because of this and so on and so forth. So everything begins to make more sense as you hit that point, as the author reveals what the intentions are, he reveals what's happening and explains all those different plots and themes. He pulls them together under one and you understand them. If I could say this, I believe as we hit this section, verses 12 through 17, it's, it's like the height of this particular section. It's the height of this book, I would also say. Because what Paul is doing is pulling together a variety of themes and he's bringing them under one heading. He has talked about the gospel, and he's talked about a variety of different things that God has done for us. He's talked about justification. He's talked about propitiation. He's talked about redemption. And he comes to this point, and he brings all those things under the heading of adoption. And we have a picture here as, as Paul pulls together. We see what God intends to do. And Paul introduces this concept that ties all of these other things together and explains the gospel in a fuller more manifold sense for us and for the readers, for them and for us. This is a high point because Paul is depicting for us. We see here what God's intentions are. We see that God's intentions are much greater and more profound than we could have ever imagined. His intentions didn't just end with forgiveness of sin. It didn't just end with the wrath of God being poured out on Christ. It didn't end with redemption from slavery. It's culminated in the picture of adoption. It culminates here in this picture of God making us sons and daughters of God. Up to this point in the chapter, we've seen that as the Spirit comes, what He does in our lives, that God says that, 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 that this is the union with Christ. This chapter describes what it means to be united with Christ. And as we're united with Him, we have the Spirit that dwells in us. In the first few verses there, we find that there's freedom and confidence that comes because the penalty of our sin has been paid. That no longer do we owe the debt of sin because Christ paid it. And so there's a freedom that we can operate now in, even in the midst of failure, in the midst of success, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of brokenness. We can live in freedom because that debt of sin has been paid by Christ. At the same time, there's a bondage of sin that's been broken as well. That we are free now to walk confidently because God says, I will live in you. And we can walk in accordance with what pleases him because his spirit now lives in us. And the last time we looked at the passages 5 through 11, we saw that, that this picture, this cosmic picture of what the spirit was doing. The spirit comes into our lives and he is reversing the fall. 
It's God dwelling in us, and what he is doing is reversing the effects of the fall on us. And we see that death and hostility was turned into life and peace. And what we deserved in death, and, and we found that we were hostile and rebellious to God, the Spirit comes and he turns that, and he gives us life and peace with God. But more than that, the Spirit's presence in our lives reminds us and gives us a kind of confidence of our identity and who we are. And in verse 9, we saw that if, in fact, the Spirit dwells in anyone, that we belong to Him. If he does not be- one doesn't belong to God and in whom the Spirit doesn't dwell, but if the Spirit is in you, you belong to God and our identity is tied to Him. And as our identity is tied to him, so is our future. And so we don't have to wonder what will happen. And Paul addresses the questions that might, one might have in terms of life and death. And if we're connected to Christ, Paul says that that same spirit that raised Christ from the grave is the same spirit that lives in us and will raise us as well. And so we have great hope in our future. And now Paul comes to this point, this high point in the, in the chapter, in this, in this, as he begins to address and move towards adoption and sonship. And what I want to do this morning is, is just unpack a little bit of what this looks like for us. Next week I'm going to go a little bit further, but talk a little bit about this adoption. In verses 12, uh, 12, 13, and 14, and what it means, the debt that's there that he talks about, as well as what it means to be led by the Spirit and then kind of some overarching pictures of, of, uh, of adoption and how to, how to get our hands around it. And next week we'll go a little bit further in talking about that. But a couple of, of things I need to, to preface. Um, I know that as we begin to talk about this concept of the fatherhood of God, that that's not always a positive thing for many of us. That the, our relationships with our fathers, maybe some our fathers were non-existent, maybe others, are, the example of our fathers was not good or even harmful to us. And so even as we begin to talk about God as father, it's not a good starting point. But what's important as we look and we, we unpack this idea of God's fatherhood, we find that he is the perfect father. And everything that our fathers were not, he is. Everything that our fathers did not do, he has done and will do. And all that our fathers couldn't be for us, he is for us. And so as we understand the fatherhood of God, we need to understand he is exactly what we need. And so, and that's the understanding of this. The second thing is, uh, you'll see in in different versions, we'll, we'll catch this differently, but we see that it refers to us as sons of God. But don't allow that to get in the way of what he means because he parallels that same thought with children of God. And so it's an inclusive understanding that sons mean sons and daughters. And so don't allow that idea to to get in the way in any way of the message of this text. It means sons and daughters of God as as we talk about this idea of adoption. As we consider this, the the one point, if I had a thesis, I want to throw out and, and, and we understand is that the, the blessing of being adopted into God's family is more rich and, and a higher blessing than we could ever imagine. That this is the pinnacle, the culmination of what God intends to do in each one of our lives. And that for us as believers, it's essential that we get our hands around this and we understand our lives as believers through this lens of adoption. Through this lens, because there's a variety of different ways, justification, redemption, Atonement, those things are important, but they lead to this point, this, this fact that God wants to make us his and has made us his. And so we understand this text and we understand our lives through this, this lens of adoption. In verse 12, we see that Paul talks about this idea of being debtors. And he says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He introduces this idea that that we're debtors, not to the flesh, but there's an obligation that we have to God. And you say, well, what's the obligation? What's what's the debt that's there? I thought the debt of our sin was paid. And Paul introduces this idea of being debtors to God. Debtors to the, not to the flesh because we owe it nothing but debtors to him. And it has something to do with putting to death the misdeeds of our body. It has something to do with the way that we live, the way that we behave. That it's connected there. And so we understand this debt. What is this debt? How do we understand it? Well, the, well, the debt is, is, is simply that we belong to God and that we're his. And that our lives must reflect that reality. The debt is that we are his, that he has made us his, he has purchased us, we've been bought with a price, and so there's a reality that we must live in, that we are his. Anyone that has the spirit of God, anyone that does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him, but those that do belong to him. We're not his possessions, but we're his children, and this debt that we owe him is an infinite debt. It's unrepayable. It's because he's purchased us, he's made us his, brought us into his family. And the debt is to live as those who represent him, as those who belong to the family, as those who resemble the family. And what a wonderful obligation that it is. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He, it's a, the same idea, and you'll catch it. He says, flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you, have, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so what he says there, we're not our own. The debt we pay is to the one who bought us, the one who owns us, the one whose we are. And as God indwells us through his spirit, he calls us that the outworking of this debt is to put to death the misdeeds or the deeds of the body, the things that are not pleasing to him, the things that show us, um, the things that don't resemble God. And so we see there, that's the debt, to live it out. And the, 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 the idea there of putting to death the deeds of the body, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. Again, day in and day out of putting those things to death, the old Puritan term is to mortify, to put to death those things and allow Christ to live in us. And so we see that, that this debt that we pay has something to do with the way we live. I, um, and dying to ourselves, dying to ourselves and living to, the, to Christ John Stott put it like this. He said, there's a kind of life that leads to death, and there's a kind of death that leads to life. There's a kind of life that that leads nothing to death, or leads us to death, but there's a kind of death of dying to ourselves that leads us to life, of knowing what real life is. And so we're called to live as those who resemble God. Mike Sweeney has this phrase, I don't know if you know Mike Sweeney, D.H., first baseman, for, used to be for the Royals. But he has a line, he says, I, when I play or when I live, I want to I live in such a way to bring a smile to God's face. I want to I bring a smile to his face. And I think this is the picture here, that, that our lives would reflect that, that our debt that we owe is a debt that, that says, I want to resemble the one who bought me. I want to resemble my father and resemble that one who made me his. And so this is the picture. But the debt that we owe to God is not a burden, it's a joy. It's a delight to repay it because it can't be repaid. It's a delight to be able to pour our lives out to him and say, you've purchased me. You have made me yours. There's great pleasure in our repayment, though we can't repay it. 
and for the rest of our lives and the very thing that characterizes us in our lives as believers is the repayment of this debt that will never be paid in eternity. And it's not a burden, but it's a joy and it's a pleasure that God calls us, invites us to, and it characterizes our lives. When my kids were younger, they, they still do this now, but they did it more when they, were, when they were younger. They used to write little notes to me, you know, and it, it was hardly a day that I would head off to work without a little note in my pocket from one of my kids. And the notes would say, I love you, Daddy, misspelled. Um, I, you know, I have a good day. I mean, again, all kinds of things, little notes that I would have in my pocket. I, w- I would walk around and, you know, in the day, and I might pull my note, the note out and find a note that my, my daughter, my son had, had written to me. They still write notes. They spell correctly now, which is good, and I still get a few now and then. But, but I would get that, and I'm reminded that, that a part of being in our family, writing that note wasn't a requirement. I didn't say, okay, kids, if you want to be in the family, a part of the requirement, the debt that you owe to be in this family is that you'll write me notes every day. I want the notes to say something like this. I love you, Daddy. Have a nice day, Daddy. No. What they did, the expression of their love through that note was very natural. And it didn't even seem like a debt to them, but it was a part of being in the family. And certainly as I received those notes, not as a a debt, a duty to be paid to a father who has said, this is what you will do. You will read your Bible. You will pray. You will share your faith. No, as an expression, there's something that comes as that debt is repaid out of understanding what God has done for us. God receives those notes, if you will, from us, and he understands. And he is pleased by that. He brings great pleasure to him as he receives from us the fruit of our lives, which his spirit has produced in us. And so the debt that Paul talks about here, because as we understand it through the lens of our adoption, we understand this is no debt. This is great joy that we have in repaying what God has done for us. But he calls us to live a kind of life that honors Christ and promises to enable us to do that. And then he goes on in verse 14, he describes this leading of the Spirit, and it's connected certainly with our lives. He says, we, we see that the Spirit is leading us and we, we, as the way that we live in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, he says. And it certainly is connected with the holiness of our lives and resembling of our lives. We know that the Spirit is leading our lives when it resembles Christ, when it resembles Him. It has that family resembles, resemblance that's there. But the question I want to ask is, what, what does it look like when God's, God leads? There's, there's this phrase of the Spirit leading and God leading His people, His sons and daughters, is laced with imagery from the Old Testament. We have this picture of God leading. And the question we ask is, what, is the pattern, what does the pattern look like when God leads? When God leads His people, what does He do? Where does He lead them from and where does He lead them And if you'll turn with me to to um, Egyptians, the book of Egyptians. (laughs) Do you know what book that is, the book of Egyptians? (laughs) How about Exodus? (laughs) The Hebrew, I guess, I don't know. Uh, um, The book of Exodus 15, we, we find how God leads. He leads from slavery to freedom. When God leads, this, this, this term, the leading of God, is, is really throughout the Old Testament. I'm going to read a couple of them in Exodus chapter 15, um, verses 11 through 13. 
Moses, the song of Moses, after they were rescued through the Red Sea and out of Egypt, he writes, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. This is the verse. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Do you see what God does when he lead? When he leads, he leads them in his love from slavery into freedom. He leads them to himself. Turn to uh, Psalm 78. Again, same word, same context, referring to the Exodus, referring to the book of Egyptians. In 78, verses 52 to 54. Psalmist writes, then he led out his people like led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. You see what God does when he leads. When his spirit leads, he leads out of slavery and he leads to freedom. He leads away from bondage and, and worship of other gods and he leads them to worship himself, to worship him to a place where that takes place. And indeed, if you were to look, Matthew chapter 4, we see that a parallel of this where Matthew tells us that Jesus, by the Spirit, was led into the wilderness. And so this text, as, as Paul tells us here, he demonstrates that the, all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All those who follow him find themselves to be redeemed, to be brought out of slavery and brought into a relationship with him. Those that follow, whom he enables to follow, those who lead him are his redeemed children. And Jesus said, you might remember his words when he said, my sheep know my voice and I know them and they follow me. And there's this picture there that when God leads, his sheep follow. When the spirit leads, his children follow the lead of the spirit and where he leads. And you see the imagery there from the Exodus that Paul goes on as he talks about slavery and fear talks about sons of God, and we see that what he's getting at here is as the Spirit leads, he leads into freedom. He leads out of slavery. And so we understand as we, through this lens of adoption, the Spirit leads us, and we follow as children of God because we understand where he is taking us. This idea, we understand that there's a debt. We understand what it looks like to, to follow the Spirit's lead. But this idea of adoption is the richest and the highest form of blessing that we have in the gospel, as I said before. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, opens his chapter on the sons of God with this, with this line. He says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. The richest answer I know is a, is a Christian is one who has God as his father. And he goes on to describe this, how this should inform our lives. He says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as revelation, you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God of, as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. 
for everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and, the, and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And so he says, and we understand it is the highest privilege that we have in the gospel because God has come and, and met our deepest need. And as I said before, he didn't just come and offer us forgiveness, although that was a wonderful thing and we needed it. He didn't just come so that the wrath of God would be poured out on Christ and not on us. In order to just come to release us as slaves into freedom, but all of those things had one point, one culmination, all those strands, all those subplots culminated in one point, one purpose, that we would be children of God. All those were prerequisites to becoming adopted. But he could have done them without adoption. We could have been forgiven. We could have been released from slavery. We could have that wrath poured out, but we would have found ourselves still to be orphans, still to be without a father. And so God says, I will make I will be a father to you. And so this is the picture that we have of adoption. And as Paul introduces this concept to them, there's a couple different reference points that are helpful for us in understanding what adoption. And certainly in our culture, we have an understanding of it. We have pictures of it. We have many that are adopted here in our congregation. Our culture that carries it. Other cultures do not have an understanding of what adoption is or why that would take place. And what Paul does, he has a couple different horizons, a couple different vantage points that he is speaking with as he addresses this. And the first is there's an Old Testament backdrop to this idea of adoption and what it is. It's interesting that the word itself doesn't, it's not anywhere in the Old Testament. You won't find adoption. But what you will find is the concept, the, the picture of adoption in kind of its seed form. You'll find that it's present, but not explicitly in the way that Paul unpacks it for us in the New Testament. But it's there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you'll turn with me there, Paul pulls on this, this idea. You'll find, we find that in the Old Testament, there's things that, that God alludes to what his intentions are. That he alludes to what he wants to do and desires to do. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul takes a promise that's made to David. And it's, a, it's a messianic promise that, that the, the Messiah would come and would reign on his throne forever. And there was a promise of fatherhood in that. And Paul takes it and he turns it just a bit in verse 18. He says, and I will be, a, this is a promise. He says, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Almighty. And so in the Old Testament, there's other references to it. So we don't see it explicitly, but it's present in seed form. It's present, but it's almost too great of an idea to really be expressed. And indeed, the, the Jew of that time couldn't even have imagined addressing God in the kinds of affectionate terms that the New Testament addresses him as. In this passage alone in, in, in um, Romans 8, we find the term Abba Father that Jesus used and instructs his followers to use. And so this promise, this hope, this blessing, this privilege of adoption is, is too great even for the Old Testament mind, for the Jew to understand that God would be father. And that he would make those who are not his, his own is an amazing thought to those in that world. And yet there's another world. There's a world the Old Testament stands behind it. The same time in, in the Roman world in which Paul wrote, it was a, it was a, a known concept of, as well. That many, their adoption was 
uh, understood, they, they saw that there were laws regulating it. And so it was common to them to some degree, they understood that, that there was an adoption and that oftentimes one, if he didn't have an heir, would adopt a son to be the heir of his family and to carry on the name. And so you have that as a backdrop as well as scripture. But you see as Paul writes to them, and he talks about this idea of adoption, he wants to merge the two ideas together. He says, you have an idea, a concept of adoption, and it's a good one. But he says there's an even bigger concept that stands behind it. There's a form of adoption that as we fill that form with the meaning of the Old Testament, we have a fuller understanding of what God's doing. That here's Yahweh, the creator God, would step into our lives and make those who are rebellious and hostile, that deserve his wrath, that he would make them his own. That he would adopt them into his family, they would be heirs of all that he has, is an amazing thought. And so Paul says, you understand this, but let me fill you in even more what's taking place. And he ups it, he escalates and says, this is God, the creator God who makes you his own children. And this is the intention of God. So the bottom line as we look at this idea of adoption it, is that it, it signifies being granted full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not naturally belong. Adoption signifies the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not naturally belong. An amazing thought that God would adopt us and give us the full rights and privileges of his children. And even more amazing, in a family that we don't belong, that we don't fit, a family that we don't even come close to resembling in and of ourselves. He says, I want you to be mine. And he makes us his. And so we see this picture from Paul's concept. He says, get this, understand what God has done. Allows us to come to him. And so he changes the language. Changes the language from the language of the courtroom and justification to the language of the family room that says, we can sit and come to God intimately as our father. Well, I want to conclude this section with four different implications of adoption. Um, next week, I want to unpack a little more of what the benefits of being a child of God but there's four implications that we consider this idea of adoption, of being his and, and him adopting us into his family. The first one, there's a corporate reality that it expresses, that it's, it's, there's a corporate aspect. And of course it makes sense, right? It's not just son or daughter, it is sons or daughters, it's children. That there are many that have the father, one father, many children. And so all of us have the same father. Therefore, there's a corporate understanding that our relationship with one another takes on a distinctive characteristic, and that is of, as brother and sister. Now, I don't know if you grew up in that tradition where brother and sister was used in church. Uh, I did. It's a little corny at times to refer to brother, sister, so-and-so, and yet it captures the point. It captures the understanding of what this corporate reality of adoption that we're his, and that together corporately we're his. As the same father, we have the same salvation. And so the picture that we have of, of adoption is that it changes our relationship with one another. The relationship we have is merely beyond, it's beyond just sitting here together in the same building, attending the same church, attending the same Bible study. It's beyond all of that. There's a cosmic relationship that we have, a connectedness that will pass, that will be a part of eternity. And indeed, not just with those in this room, but those in other churches worshiping here in Lawrence, other Christians who have worshiped all times and all places around the globe. And indeed, the culmination of that reality will be standing before him with every tongue and tribe and people and nation singing and praise, 
praises to the one Father who has made us his. So there's a corporate reality. There's a personal reality as well. And the personal one is that it's particular. God chose us individually in him. He saw each of us. He knows each of us by name. And so there's a corporate as well as a particular aspect of this. But we know that he chose us not because of anything that we had to offer, not because of anything that we had, any characteristics. Oh, I want that as much as he chose to save us and to make us his own. In spite of what we are, he made us his. And the picture for me, and maybe you've been online or maybe you've looked at, at, at books that have pictures of children who are waiting to be adopted or been on Compassion's website and you find children there that you can sponsor. And you go, you have to choose and you choose. And the picture is that God knew us and he chose us specifically and made us his own. So there's a corporate reality, there's a personal reality, as well as there's a sovereign one. And, and indeed, the, the child doesn't choose the family. The child doesn't choose the father. The father chooses the child. And so God is at work. It's his, his, at his initiation that this takes place. And there's great mystery that's a part of this that we don't quite understand we need to be careful with, but we understand that it's his choosing and he's chosen us. And if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, we get a picture of that mystery that Paul impacts as he writes. Verse 4 of chapter 1 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God's purposes before time began is that we would be his. It wasn't because we chose him, it's because he chose us. And we can take no credit for it. It was purely upon his gracious work. And so there's a corporate reality, there's a particular reality, a personal one. There's a sovereign work of God to cause this to happen. But, and then fourthly, and this runs counter to our culture. And again, this is even hard to kind of to express, but it's not a universal one. Our world would like to think, our culture would like to say that, that God is the father of everyone. And the scriptures just don't bear witness to that. God is not the father. He is the creator of everyone, to be sure. And by virtue of being created, everyone bears the image of God and deserves respect and honor because of that. But not everyone has God as a father. Not everyone knows God in that way. And as Bill has said in the past, everyone has a relationship with God. Some, it's re they relate to God as a judge. For others who know Christ, they relate to God as Father. And so this is not a universal characteristic, but it's about those who have been adopted, those who God has said he's made a part of the family. And if you look at the context of chapter 8, you see that it's all there. Not everyone at the end of 7 were... Paul cries out, what a wretched man I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Not everyone has that cry. Not everyone is united with Christ. Not everyone has set their mind on the things that please God. Not everyone has put to death an ongoing process of putting to death the misdeeds of the body. And not everyone has received the spirit of adoption in their lives. And for, for those of us who find ourselves adopted with God as Father, what a wonderful privilege. But as we see our lives through that lens of adoption, we understand the privilege and the blessing that's there. And it helps us understand the debt that we owe to God. But the debt is a pleasure to pay back, to be able to live our lives in a way that would honor him. And the motivation is there because we're his. Our desire is to resemble him, 
in the way that we live, to lead and to follow, to follow the Spirit's lead in our lives day in and day out. And I think the most wonderful part of all, maybe, is we truly grasp the richness of being adopted into God's family is what we get to do with it. This is not an exclusive claim. As we have God as our Father, His desires that is in our lives and the way that we live and the way that we talk, that others would know how good He is. God is adopting. He is in the process of bringing people to Himself. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. He is involved in using us and talking about Him in such a way that others find Him to be Father. And so people that we run into who find themselves to be slaves to sin, people who are orphans in in desiring a father in their lives, what a great opportunity we have to talk about our Father and to invite them into relationship with our great Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for these truths that uh, there is a debt that we owe that's a wonderful debt, that we're not our own, but we're yours. Help us to to live that out by the power of your spirit in each of our lives. Help us to follow the lead of your spirit because we know where you lead. You lead from bondage and sin. You lead to life. And so we follow you. And Father, help us to continue to grasp the depth of this reality. You've adopted us corporately. You've adopted us individually. It's your sovereign work. And so we bow our knees and we say, what an awesome God you are, that you would do that for us. Trench that into our minds and our hearts. And Father, would you use us in the lives of others so that they would come to find you as Savior and Father as well. We know this is the work that you're doing. This is the work that, that you're a part of, using your people to talk about you so that others would know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would ask you to stand for the, the benediction. The, the response to the benediction is I will follow the Lord, amen. And again, we understand as we, as we follow him, we understand where he leads us from slavery into freedom, from life with no purpose to life with a purpose, and our purpose revolves around him as our father. I would ask you now, this is the, uh, God's benediction, his good word to us, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, forevermore. And it's all in, in God's name, or it, and, and everybody said, I will follow the Lord. Amen. Something like that.